Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 116 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we took a look at the new iPads. In this episode, we tip our hats to one of the podcasts that inspired our podcast and turn our attention to some of the most longstanding and baffling questions we continue to run into about legal technology and lawyers using technology. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we'll be talking about technology conundrums, uh, those persistently difficult questions that never seem to go away and then people always struggle to answer, but not us. Uh, We're going to try to tackle them on this show. In our second segment, we'll talk about one of our favorite conundrums that we run into when we do technology presentations for lawyers. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our main topic, and that's technology conundrums. The idea for this episode comes from one of the podcasts that inspired us to start the Kennedy Mall Report, the Slate Political Gab Fest, one of our favorites. The past few years, they have recorded a conundrums episode where they try to answer seemingly unanswerable questions on just about every topic. Uh, We thought we'd do the same, but we wouldn't do it on every topic. We would limit it to legal technology. I I have to say, Dennis, these conundrums are tough for me, too, the ones we're going to talk about. Uh, So, Dennis, do you have anything to add, or do you want to launch into our first conundrum? I was just thinking how, for us, the Slate Political Gabfest was totally an inspiration for our podcast, but our podcast is nothing like the political gab fest. It's Correct. <laughs> kind of funny. In the same way, like our, uh, you know, part of the interruption was our other inspiration. We're nothing like it either. So that's a bit of a conundrum how we came up with what <laughs> we've come up with. But let's start with the first one. And Tom, I, I'm going to have you take this one on first because uh, you've been doing a lot of traveling. And, and this one, uh, something I find to be the case more and more these days. And it's this. If technology is getting smaller and lighter, why is my bag or briefcase getting bigger and heavier? You know, it's funny that, and this is one of the conundrums that you listed for us to talk about. It's funny that you listed it because before I went on all my travel earlier this year, I uh, I went out and bought a new backpack. I've been using a computer bag that's over the shoulder, and I decided I wanted a backpack instead because I was going to be traveling a lot. And the backpack that I chose is just enormous. It just holds so much. And I found that now my backpack is even bigger and heavier than it was before. And I opened it up and I tried to find out what's in it that's making it bigger and heavier. And I mean, my answer, you know, the answer to this conundrum will be personal for me anyway. And that's because I think that the number of useful gadgets and useful tools that you can take with you that help you be productive when you're traveling are just increasing at just really very fast rates. I've got a little mesh bag that I keep all of these helpful things in, and I have my phone battery. I've got a a mobile power outlet that I take with me. I just this past week started carrying my Google Chromecast. I've got all sorts of things that I keep putting in there, and I really think that it's a volume thing. I think that 
because there are so many things, I think that the temptation is to uh, to take as many of them that would be useful to us as we possibly can. I sense, though, Dennis, that maybe you and I may be missing the point of mobile technology here when we think about this. What about you? Well, I have a backpack that I take to work, and it's gotten preposterously heavy, and it makes me wonder, and I kind of pull it apart, and... And then if you if you go to what I carry when I'm traveling, where I'd say, oh, I have this uh, MacBook Air, I have an iPad Mini, and I have a phone in my pocket. And I sort of think it's all, I don't even have the extra batteries you do, but it's sort of like all the cords, headphones, you know, all these different things. And it's surprising. I just think it's the number of things that we take with us. So we've sort of gone from a thing where you said, oh, I might take a laptop, this big heavy laptop with me, but that's about it. But as you said, there are all these different things where you say, oh, I, this would be helpful. And oh, yeah, some flash drives and these adapters and, you know, different types of headphones, the ones for the plane, the ones for not on the plane, all that sort of thing. And it, it is surprising, you know, how I guess maybe it is. Maybe it's it's volume more than weight, but my backpack is surprisingly heavy. So I would like to think it's I want to agree with you that we have all these things that are just really useful. I just think that we have all these things that are useful, maybe not always essential, but good to have with us. And each of them isn't that big or doesn't weigh that much. But when you have 20 or 30 of them, it starts to add up. I think that's exactly right. And I think that what's nice about some of these tools are they are the mobile version of of a tool that solves a problem that you have when you're at your home or when you're in your office. And I think this is what's the hashtag that I see on Twitter, first world problems. We're having problems with as heavy as they're getting uh, because the technology is getting so good and the, and the tools are getting so nice. I'd be interested to hear in what our listeners have to say. And, uh, you know, we've got and I'll mention it again at the end of the podcast. We've got a Twitter account and a Gmail address. If you notice the same thing, uh, let us know and send us an email. Let us know what y'all are thinking about that. Let's move on to the second conundrum. And I'll let you, Dennis, kick off with it. The second conundrum is, and I think this is something that bothers both of us, which is how do lawyers stay as late adopters so comfortably without any problems at all, seemingly? Yeah, I, I just can't get over the number of times I talk to lawyers who are perfectly content and perfectly happy to tell you that they don't want to use certain types of technology, that they don't see the need for certain things, that they sort of long for the old days. And they also don't feel it really has a negative impact on client service or anything else. And they don't feel the drive to learn new things or to try new things. That drive, I think, that you and I have and a lot of people we know where you just go like, oh, my God, this is out here. It could help me in my work, could help me in do the work I do for people. It could make things better. You know, I have to do this. And in my case, I don't necessarily... And this sometimes surprises people about me, but I don't necessarily have to be the first adopter. I'm just, you know, fairly early in that curve of adoption. I'm probably in the second wave, typically, with some exceptions. But I just can't imagine being so late in the process and and then struggling against, you know, all these things. And and sort of, I think, some of the complaints that lawyers have about technology relates to the fact that they're using technology that's so old. I mean, time I've just seen like a burst of blog posts and things reminding lawyers that Windows XP is about to be dead and gone, unsupported, and people need to do something about it. And think, oh my God, when I was using Windows XP, it just took so long to boot up. I mean, like, how can people still do that? And I think that 
I guess one answer to time is I really don't understand how they do it, but I sort of think people fall back to that notion of this is a profession. What I'm doing is the law that has value in and of itself, and there's, there's some mystique to that, and that technology you know, like sales and marketing or other things that some lawyers don't feel is part of the profession per se, is something they don't need to do. And and so I think it's this kind of odd thing because I've always seen technology as a way to help you do what it is that lawyers do well. But yeah, I don't know. I guess it, it stays a conundrum for me, Tom. I just don't know how you can stay comfortable with that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think you're partially right, but I wonder whether it is so much a, uh, you know, I practice law and the laws of profession, I don't have time for anything else, as to say they, they really don't have time for anything else. I know a lot of lawyers who spend so much time running their practice and actually doing the law part of practicing law that you know, marketing their practice or learning about technology really has to take a backseat to that. And they hire an accountant to do their finances and uh, they hire an administrator to run their office. But the rest of it, the stuff that they really ought to learn more about, they're just not learning about because they just don't have the time. So that's one possible explanation for that. I guess my, my main thought about why lawyers are late adopters is because as a profession, as a group. Lawyers are traditionally risk averse. And by being risk averse, they're late to the party on a number of different things. And it could be for two reasons. One, they're afraid to try new technology. They they like what's comfortable and what works before. And, you know, I've just spent all this time learning how to use Windows XP. Why are you asking me now to use a later version of Windows? I think it has something to do with the fact that a lot of lawyers also want to wait until everybody else has tried it, or at least until beyond the second or third or fourth wave of adopters. I think they want to have some sense that they're not out there on the cutting edge, that they're not trying to do things that anybody else is doing, so that if they fail, then at least they've got some support. They know that it's been tried and it's something that they can get into with, I think, very little wasted time on their part so that they don't spend as much time learning about technology and more time actually practicing law, which is ultimately more important. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the comfort level with the status quo. We're all comfortable to some extent with the status quo, but when you say, I've been you know, using this old technology for seven, eight years, whatever, I just don't see how you can stay comfortable with status quo. And maybe that's sort of different with earlier adopters with technology is that our discomfort with status quo starts to happen a little sooner. But when I talk to people who are clients of lawyers and they laugh about lawyers being uncomfortable with technology, I sort of think a lot of lawyers who are late adopters should hear some of that discussion. Speaking of late adoption or technology that might be on its way out, maybe, here's our next one, Tom. If email is dying, why is it so hard to get people to use anything else? And I guess we're sort of experts on this time because we're always trying to get people to move into collaboration tools and people always end back with email. What are your thoughts on this one? 
Well, I will say that of the two of us, you are the one that says that email is dying far more often than I am because I happen to work in an industry where email is very much, very much still front and center. And I, when I say industry, in records management, we work with companies across all industries. And the number one problem everyone has is email and precisely because it's not dying. But I'll answer the question the first way by saying that email still remains the best vehicle for communicating quickly and informally and sending attachments along with it. There are other tools that are out there, but they are not as ubiquitous as email. It is simple to send something to a bunch of people at once and attach documents to it and then have that, which we're finding lots of people do, have that serve as your filing cabinet. It's where you go for everything, your memory and all the stuff that you want to keep and go back to and refer to. So I think it's become a crutch to a lot of people, and that's another reason why email isn't dying. One thing that I think is interesting, though, I was talking with a, a person who handles social media for a very, very large beverage company, and he seems to think that email actually will die within 10 years because primarily of the millennials. He said the millennials don't use email, they don't like to use it, they prefer text messaging, and he predicts 10 years before email is on its way out in corporate America. I can't really agree with 10 years. I think it's going to take longer if it's going to happen at all. But I really have to think it's going to be very difficult to become a text message or instant message based society. When you consider that it's hard to attach documents to a text message, I don't think that text messages are seen as particularly professional in terms of communications. I'm not sure that if I send a text message to my client that they would consider that to be a formal professional communication. So um, I'm going to be interested to see what happens as the millennial generation who pretty much has grown up despising email comes into the corporate workplace. But I think that at least for the time being, email is alive and kicking. Dennis? Yeah, I'm, I don't think email's going away anytime soon, but it is really interesting to me. And I think you hit on a couple things about email that people do like. It's this sort of asynchronous, somewhat informal approach to send messages that are stored and kept on one hand and also to send attachments. And I think that attachment piece of it is really big. And so it works and people know how to use it and they know its limitations and they, for the most part, can live with those limitations. And as they come up, people are, are fairly tolerant at this point to say, you can say, oh, your email must have got in my spam filter. Oh, I'm responding. I didn't get the new email with the newest draft of that document attached to it. So I marked up the old one, you know, that sort of thing. People are just used to that kind of stuff. Oh, I accidentally forward your email to the other side. You know, all, all those things that will happen with email. I think people are, at this point, tolerant of that. But I think you're right. There is a new generation that says, wait, this doesn't, emails don't make sense. To me, there's sort of this blunt force type of communication or as a text message or other type of, of communication may make more sense, especially where somebody's available to talk to. So I think that's changing. I think what's sort of more interesting to me about this conundrum, Tom, is when we look at the collaboration vehicles, and we've tried, you know, different things and things we've been involved in. And you'll try SharePoint and these other things. And it will start out okay. And then it's, it's almost as soon as somebody sends an email outside of that system, the whole system breaks down, which is kind of a, 
you know, an interesting phenomenon. But again, it's this sort of status quo thing. You go, it's good enough. It sort of gets it done. Everybody has email at this point. But I'm intrigued by that, the millennial thing. Because if you say, if I'm firing emails at people who don't pay attention to email, like this people who don't listen to their voicemail or, or that sort of thing, then I have to come up with another way of doing that. And that I think is a possible, you know, a possible way that we'll make that change. But I'm, I'm sort of troubled with what you see of documents or email attachments. They're not in one central place. It's hard for people to know which is the current version, all that sort of thing. So there are better tools out there. I just think it's, they aren't ubiquitous in the same way email is. No, you're right. And the problem is that there's a culture around email that so far, nobody's really found a good tool to replace email for what it does. And I think you're right. That's going to be the challenge going forward, not only for the current generation who's using email, but for the millennials trying to find that tool that everyone can use that people won't be tempted to head out of and send an email outside of it uh, and thereby make it useless. And I think uh, that'll be kind of interesting to see where that comes along. All right, here's another conundrum, Dennis. This is a law firm and technology question. If Here you go. If your main criterion for making decisions about technology is, are other firms already doing this, then how do you advance? Yeah, this one I think is a big one. I, and I think this distinguishes the firms that are innovators that are really doing cool things from the rest of people. And I think this is a, a time where that differentiation can really help you move outside the, the pack of other firms. I just think it is, when you think about this, and this happens all the time when you're talking to lawyers about technology, they say, well, who else is using this? Or what do other firms do? Or what do other firms like mine do, you start to say, well, is that really the right comparison you want to make? You know, just because another firm is doing it doesn't mean it will work for you. I mean, law firms aren't cookie cutter. Law practices aren't cookie cutter. There might be better ways to do that. And they could be using it badly or it might not work for them. It's just sort of like, what do you really learn when you say, oh, are other firms really doing that? It's it's like you're being a little bit lazy about your own investigation and your own decision. But I think in the question is a really kind of interesting notion is if I'm saying I'm not going to move until I see other firms are doing it, then, I mean, it comes back to this you know, comfort with the status quo thing again. You're saying, how am I really going to, I can't really advance if I'm not putting myself into a zone of discomfort to uh, at least some discomfort to move forward. So I think that moving away from that, are other firms already doing this is an important step that any firm or any lawyer can take in, in dealing with technology. And I'm going to actually take the anti-innovation position of this conundrum, because when you ask the question, are other firms already doing this, then in some ways, you're describing some of the most successful technology companies in Silicon Valley, the companies that don't race to innovate on it, but stay behind and provide thoughtful and tremendously useful improvements upon what already came before and actually come out ahead ultimately because they weren't first. They didn't rush to market. They didn't do things like that. And and I find that although I'm not talking to law firms, I'm talking to corporations, the most common question that I get from in-house counsel about information governance and those types of things is, what are other companies in my industry doing? 
how do I match up? How do we match up with those particular companies? Because I sense that there's not a particular interest in being first or best or better in certain topics. Uh, you know, information governance. We're best in information governance, although that does contain some some risk issues. It's not something that you're going to go and issue a press release on necessarily. And I and I think the same is true with legal technology. Is you know, we have the best technology is going to sometimes interest clients? Sometimes not. Uh, I think that clients expect that law firms are going to use the technology that's going to help represent them the best. Sometimes they're very disappointed by that and sometimes not. But I'm not real surprised when I hear law firms say that. And to a certain extent, as long as those firms get in line, as long as they adopt when they should adopt and not be such late adopters, then it doesn't bother me so much when they're trying to find out what other firms are doing, because I think that ultimately it allows them to do what needs to be done. And, you know, I think innovation is important. I'm not poo-pooing innovation, but I don't see that the majority of firms are going to be the innovators. I think we look at a smaller subset of lawyers and law firms to do those things. And I think everybody else is going to be the follower on. And I just think that's sort of a, a fact of life. I would also say it's interesting to me that lawyers, if they look at their own practices, I don't think they would say, you know, we're not going to represent clients or do this type of legal work because we're not sure that other firms like us are doing the same thing. I don't think that it really enters into the equation. So it's interesting how even lawyers who are innovators in any number of ways on technology will kind of freeze up on that. And I guess that is what makes this, like all the other ones, uh, kind of a conundrum. Yep. I don't know that we've answered them. I don't know that we ever will answer them, but let's take a break now. And before we move on to our next segment, take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And we're back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. We thought it would be fun to pay a small tribute to the Slate Political Gap Fest, which we highly recommend that you listen to, and repurpose one of their 2012 conundrums from a technology perspective because it relates to a conundrum Tom and I have from time to time. I ran into this most recently when I was giving a presentation on Facebook for lawyers. When I asked the question at the start of my presentation whether anyone had ever used Facebook or even seen a Facebook page, I was surprised because about 20 to 25 percent of the hands went up. That was a oh, number one. Then I asked how many felt they were really good at using Facebook and might even uh, think that they were experts on it. Wasn't quite as many, but it was still a significant number. That was a oh, number two for me. So I recently got the evaluation summaries, and the comments certainly reflected the division in the audience. So here's the conundrum. When presenting technology topics to lawyers, 
Should you focus on the ones of unfamiliar with the technology and hold back your material that would really benefit the advanced users? Or do you do what you can with the newbies and try to deliver the most value to the advanced users? Or do you try to find some middle ground that might not work well for anyone and give you those lukewarm uh, evaluations? Tom? So would it be a cop-out if I just say I have no idea and be done with it at that? I think really this is probably one of the best conundrums we've talked about, although it's a little inside baseball. It's for those of us who give technology presentations, uh, but I would be interested to hear what some of our listeners have to say on this. I, I think that no matter which option you choose right there, I think you're going to disappoint somebody. Somebody's not going to enjoy that seminar. If you make it too basic, you turn off the advanced users, they've wasted their time. If you make it too advanced, the uh, your beginner's eyes will glaze over. You know, my typical preference is to have somewhat of a mix, to start off a little bit basic, to let people know I'm going to kind of do the basics and then move into more advanced topics over the course of the presentation. You know, one thing that I've done lately for some of my iPad presentations is really turn it around and have the audience tell me what they want and ask them, what are the things that are important to you? What do you want to come away from here learning? And I've had, a, I would say maybe 75% of those presentations, it's been very successful and I have come away with them basically running the entire agenda of the presentation, which I thought was actually very cool because they were very satisfied because they got answers to the questions they were interested in and they didn't have to worry about my agenda and whether I was going to cater to advanced or beginners. But if you have to pick one over the other, if you only have those three options, I don't know that I could do any of those options. I don't know how you choose. Dennis? Well, you know, I like your approach, and that's worked well for me when you just ask people what's on their minds and what they want you to talk about. That works obviously better with smaller groups than larger groups, although I can tell you, you can get some uh, comments back saying, you know, speakers seemed unprepared, didn't know what they wanted to talk about, that sort of thing. But you kind of, you know, that goes with the territory when you take that approach. And I tend to lean toward, I end up in that middle ground, but I like to cater to the advanced users. I mean, that's sort of who I am, and, and that's the audience I want to reach. And I think the people who will get excited about the best material that I have and the approaches that I take. And, you know, you, you can take your lumps with that. But, I, you know, I try to bring people along as best I can. If I had to choose, it was that. And and I sort of feel that this goes to the thing where a lot of times you just go to that 50 tips in 50 minutes, you know, approach. And that's what I go to if I know I'm going to have just this massive split in the audience. Because then I can at least say, well... There will be something for everybody, and the tips go by quickly, so if it's not relevant to some people, the next one might be, and people will be okay with that. But I'm not even sure that, you know, as a presenter, that the the tips approach is ultimately that satisfying, because I think you can kind of leave some of your best material, you know, at home when you do a tips approach. So that's why I thought, Tom, to, to me, Tom, I, it always seems like if you were pushed, I think you like to bring everybody along if you can. Uh, and so I, I think where I might kind of tip a little bit to the advanced user, you might tip a little bit to the beginner user. I don't know. That's my sense. Well, no, I think all things considered, 
I would probably rather be talking about the advanced topics than about the basic topics. They're more interesting. They're more involved. They are a lot more fun. But I guess that taking that approach sort of belies the other conundrums that we've talked about today is you've got a lot of late adopters who are beginners sitting in these sessions wanting to learn about certain legal technology topics and choosing to ignore them sort of perpetuates the problem, continues to have those people be frustrated and and late adopters. I truly believe there's no really good answer to this other than to do a tips or or have them drive it or just pray that you get an audience where uh, where everybody's basic and you don't have a whole lot of advanced users. I have to say that most of the sessions I teach lately, the users I would say are closer to the basic level. So I, I've been relatively lucky, but I got to say that's one of the toughest conundrums that I've come across lately. Well, I was going to say, Tom, if you had the uh, Facebook presentation I had, then you asked for the show of hands, and such a big chunk of the room said they hadn't even seen the Facebook site or Facebook page. I mean, it threw me, and I assume it would throw you as well. (laughs) Yeah, it would. Well, we keep trying then, and I don't know, I I think that maybe just asking, you know, especially in those types of things, just asking people and can work well. I I think that does work well with a small group, so maybe I'll try a little bit more of that this year. And now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. Well, I gave away my parting shot earlier in the podcast. If you caught it, I was talking about what I think is probably one of the nicer stocking stuffers. So I think this podcast is probably going to come out before Christmas. If you're still looking around for an inexpensive stocking stuffer, try the Google Chromecast. It is Google's entry into the streaming media devices like the Roku box and the Apple TV, only the Chromecast costs $35. It looks like a little USB key that you plug into the high-definition port in the back of your TV or on your computer monitor, and then all you have to do is uh, you can stream Netflix or Hulu or really anything from a Google Chrome browser page to a TV. I've been using it to watch Hulu and to watch Netflix shows. I plan to. I brought it on my first trip last week to plug it into my hotel room in case there wasn't anything interesting. I could fire up an old TV show or a movie that I wanted to watch. Um, Fortunately, the hotel room's TV did not want to cooperate. But a lot of TVs are are getting to be more advanced where you can actually plug in an HDMI device. And the Google Chromecast is great. And you really can't beat the price at 35 bucks. It's really a great tool. I think Time Magazine just called it its technology of the year. So for 35 bucks, you need to take advantage of it. Dennis. Just to one really quick, there's the uh, ABA's Law Practice Division, and we're involved on the publishing board. Tom has come out with a whole bunch of the In One Hours technology books uh, here toward the end of the year. I think perfect gifts for the holidays. I recommend people take a look at those. But the other one I want to mention is uh, our friends at Techno Lawyer, Neil Squilante, and his group have released something called Techno Lawyer's Top 25 Tech picks of 2013 you know just one of, of many useful things that they do there and uh it was interesting because the number one item on their list was this uh transporter sort of wi-fi hard drive that i'm using and, and really really liked the transporter people provided you know eval product to us and we use it actually to transfer the audio files to our producers of the show so i've had really good experience with the transporter it's nice to see it on the Technology list is is number one and nice list of uh, twenty five picks. 
So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. You can get to archives of all our previous podcasts in both places as well. If you have a uh, question or an idea for an upcoming session or episode, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet at tkmreport. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by rating or reviewing the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.